0: from the king. Yeah, looking at five Old Testament kings who were honored by God for their prayers. Uh, In week one, we saw two of the kings, a father-son combo, David and Solomon. In week two, we looked at King Asa and his great prayer of faith. And this morning, let's go to 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where we will see a king named Jehoshaphat. And yeah, so I want you to go to 2 Chronicles 20. Brother Scott mentioned that two weeks from today is our Labor Day breakfast. On Labor Day Sunday, we have special treat that day, uh, 9.30 out in the gymnasium out in that corner of the property. And we're asking all of our classes uh, to gather together for some fellowship on that day. And I hope that you'll join us. Uh, it is important for us to know and support each other through fellowship. Fellowship isn't the meal part. Fellowship is the knowing and supporting each other part. And so I hope that you will get to come for that. Uh, he also mentioned that we have Awana coming up in September. And, you know, uh, we have offered Awana as a ministry to our community for many, many years here at Centennial. And this year, we are severely lacking volunteers and, uh, and so next Sunday, right after the service, uh, if you have any interest in helping to volunteer from September through April uh, on uh, some of those Wednesday nights, and, and there's a few of them that are off, but most of the Wednesday nights from September to April, uh, helping boys and girls to learn Scripture that will be the foundation of their lives for years to come, then I hope you'll do that. I think in American Christianity, we have reached a crisis point with ministry involvement uh, from people who go to church. It's it's interesting. We readily uh, volunteer for kids' sports leagues and for community organizations, but we don't see as much involvement in church. It's almost like that commitment is just huge, uh, but it's not really. It's one hour a week, and we would love for you to really help with them. And I'm not chastising you. I'm asking you to help. Uh, we need four or five people to really help so that we can continue this ministry to our community. And so I hope that you will. Here we go in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 this morning, and I want to read a big portion of this story. We do have it on the screens, but I want you to look at it uh, in your Bible if you have not or on your Bible app. And here we go, Second Chronicles chapter 20. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon, and with them other besides the Ammonites, came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be in has his own Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all of the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? Are not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil cometh upon us, "'as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, "'we stand before this house, and in thy presence, "'for thy name is in this house, "'and cry unto thee on our affliction, "'then thou wilt hear in hell. "'And now, behold, the children of Ammon and Moab "'and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldst not let Israel invade "'when they came out of the land of Egypt, "'but they turned from them and destroyed them not. "'Behold, I say, how they reward us "'to come to cast us out of thy possession.' which thou hast given us to inherit. O oh, our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jile, the son of Mataniah, a Levine of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken ye all, Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. Say, Pastor, why do you read the whole passage? Well, because we need the whole story today. I'm telling you, when when people uh, think of, of the word worship, they often think of a church service once a week. Or maybe they just think of the singing part of the church service once a week. But worship is a whole lot more than that. Worship is showing God that we value Him at the highest place in our lives, regardless of the circumstances. And it isn't assigned to a certain day or a certain time of the week. Uh, It isn't about a suggested format. A heart of worship is a heart that is at one with God's purposes, anytime, any place, any situation. And most people fail to understand what Jehoshaphat knew. Worship is the answer to crisis. That's what we're going to talk about today. Worship is the answer to crisis. Here the Moabites and Ammonites showed up to fight. And instead of panicking, Jehoshaphat worshipped. Now, most things uh, have one opposite, right? Right? uh let's let me shout out a few. you see if you guys can give me the opposite, all right? I'll start easy. the opposite of day truth a lie, okay? boy, man, you guys are a lot smarter than some people, aren't you? um strength friend enemy foe, okay uh We could do all sorts of different ones, and you guys give me the one-word answer. You guys are so smart. You got it figured out. I I like this. But worship is unique. Now, in the dictionary, you can find some words that are called antonyms or opposites for worship, uh, like dishonor or disrespect or disregard. But, you know, there are some practical opposites of worship that we should think about as we get into Jehoshaphat's prayer this morning. Because worship is the opposite of at least three or four things. Uh, Worship is the opposite of worry. If you're bowing your heart before God, you won't be spending any time fretting. Worship is also the opposite of idolatry. If you're bowing your heart before God, you won't be bowing it to anything else. Worship is the opposite of self-reliance. If you're leaning fully on God, you won't be leaning on your own understanding or strength. And so worship has a lot of practical opposites, which makes it uh, really the perfect answer to crisis. That's what we see in the life and prayer of King Jehoshaphat. So we're going to go through this prayer this morning, and then we'll bring in some verses at the end of the passage as well. And I hope you will join me. The notes are provided in your bulletin or on the YouVersion app. And there's a kid's bulletin today as well. Here we go. Let's start by talking about they came to seek the Lord. They came to seek the Lord. I want you to look again with me at verse number three. And if you like to underline words in your Bible, there are some phrases and words that really stand out here. Look at this. And Jehoshaphat feared... Okay, so he had a natural human emotion. Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. That's the first thing we're looking at this morning. They came to seek the Lord. When Judah was invaded, the the king's fear drove him to pursue God even more than he had before. Now, here's the thing about fear. If you're not seeking God when fear comes, you won't seek God even more when fear comes. Okay, you already have to be seeking God. If you read the backstory on his life up to this point, you find that Jehoshaphat had maintained a heart for God since his father Asa's death. In fact, you look back to chapter 17. I'll show you this in Second Chronicles 17, verse number 3. And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the first ways of his father David and sought not unto Balaam, but sought to the Lord God of his father. And verse 6 says, his heart was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. So Jehoshaphat Already had a heart for God. But when the land was invaded, when crisis came, he stepped up his worship even more. Fear didn't drive him to despair or worry, it drove him to his knees. I like that. I like that because I need that. When fear comes, it shouldn't drive us to worry, it shouldn't drive us to sleepless nights, it should drive us to worship. And I'm guessing if I need it, you need it too. Fear, shall I repeat it? Fear didn't drive him to despair or worry. It drove him to his knees. And he proclaimed a national fast. Now, national fasts are not something that the current generation is used to. Uh, Maybe you don't know that in 1863, during the middle of our greatest national crisis, the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln signed Proclamation 97 appointing a national day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer. But this wasn't out of the ordinary. In fact, Lincoln had done it before as president with Proclamation 85. Uh, Our first president, George Washington, proclaimed a similar day when he was general of the Continental Army In May of 1779. In fact, he ordered all army activities to cease for that day so that soldiers could observe the day along with fellow citizens. John Adams, the second president, followed suit by proclaiming a national day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. James Madison did the same thing. Now, here's the thing about proclamations for national fasting, humiliation, and prayer. People, obviously, choose whether they will or will not participate. Uh, You cannot be compelled to humble yourself before God. Right? There's nobody who can walk up to you and say, okay, humble yourself right now and make you do it. It's a heart issue. Nobody can do it for you. You can't be forced to pray. Only you can do that for yourself. Fasting is a topic of its own. It's a lost discipline in modern Christianity. But fasting is a deeply personal decision. I remember uh, I was just finishing high school in 1990, and it it was August, and I was about to start my first semester of college. Iraq invaded Kuwait, and it kind of set the stage for the Gulf War to break out several months later. And in our college, in that semester, there were a few times that year uh, when there was a fasting and prayer proclamation. But you know what? I I discovered not everybody did it. Right? There was a proclamation, but there were still people at the candy machine during break. Right? There was a proclamation, but people still went to Arby's and got a roast beef sandwich. Okay? Yeah. Not everybody did it fasting and prayer. Have to be chosen by each individual. Now, if you look down at verse number four again in chapter 20, you see that the people followed the king's act of worship. They gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Now, this is fascinating because they freely sought the Lord on their own. And after Jehoshaphat's prayer at verse 13, they stood before the Lord with their entire family, personally, consciously deciding to worship. If there's ever been a time when we need to seek the Lord, it's right now. At God's people, though, we don't need to wait for a national proclamation before we commit ourselves to humility, fasting, and prayer. The truth is, we may never again get a national proclamation for it. We may never have another one. Christianity may be the minority from here on out in the United States of America, but we don't need to wait for a statewide or church-wide proclamation. We need to pray and fast and humble our hearts before the mighty God who controls outcomes. I love the details of Jehoshaphat's prayer. Uh, we read it just a minute ago, but if you go through this, uh, you could compare this to the model of Solomon's temple dedication prayer. That's in 2 Kings chapter 8, and uh, then it's listed again here in 2 Chronicles. It, it follows that pattern. That prayer was given 100 years before, and now Jehoshaphat prays. It says, God, you're our God right? We, we come to you in this dwelling place. And then he says, if when evil comes against us, and if the sword comes, and if the judgments come, uh, hear us, help us. That's what Solomon had prayed. And so they were willing to seek the Lord. Now, I want you to look down to verses 12 and 13 again. And let's look at this second part of the message today. But our eyes are upon thee, Our eyes are upon thee. Look what he says in verse 12. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And so after reminding God of his covenant with the Israelites, the king authentically stated the truth of their predicament. And I guarantee you, this is the same truth for every predicament you've ever been in or will be in. Uh, the predicament really comes down to this. We have no might against this great company. Neither know we what to do. All right, that's the predicament. But the answer is, our eyes are upon thee. Uh, listen, if you're the person who always knows what to do, that signals you not having a humble heart of worship, right? Because the people of faith in Scripture, you know what we find out they had in common? They didn't know what to do, right? They didn't know what to do. They said, God, we rest on you. Hey, God, I don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. And you might as well say it out loud because it's reality. There's a lot of people who fake good on this. Have you ever noticed that the talking heads and power brokers who always know what to do seem to have a really bad batting average? Right? They tell you this is going to happen and then it doesn't happen or it happens a different way. And the poor weatherman even gets thrown into this. He tells you, "Ah, the smoke's clearing out this week, and you wake up the next morning, there's still smoke everywhere, right? Because he doesn't know. He can guess, but he doesn't know. And there's Afghanistan experts that were on TV a month ago who look like complete fools now. Why? Because they don't know what to do. And the truth is, none of us know what to do. If we would just admit it up front, we'd be a whole lot better off. And they're wrong a whole lot more than they are right. And I mean, they sound so confident in their ideas and their predictions. And I guess people like that assurance. I suppose that's a thing. But when everything that they say is a fraud, then liking their assurance doesn't matter at all. And it comes down to this. There is no person with the knowledge and strength to lead without God. You can't lead your family without God. You can't lead your business without God. You can't lead yourself without God. You can't lead the neighborhood association of dog walkers without God, much less a city, state, or nation without God. And when you figure out what Jehoshaphat knew, you'll realize that spiritual leading is really spiritual leaning says, God, we, we have no might. We don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you. Now, when you read that sentence, when you read those words, if a modern leader stood up and said this, can you imagine how he would be mocked? I mean, the modern leader stands up and says, you know what? We don't have any might. We don't know what to do. We're just going to rely on God for this one. Can you imagine what the New York Times would print? Especially if there were an R beside his name. Can you imagine what would be said on talk radio and Twitter about the guy? And when you read the words, you might think, wow, Jehoshaphat, he's a weak leader. No certainty there, no assurance there but he's exactly the kind of leader we need to be. And this is exactly the opportunity that God's looking for, a heart of worship that leans completely on him, facing the reality that their might and knowledge won't make anything happen. And so leading is leaning. Spiritual leadership, in its most effective form, is simply spiritual leanership. And I'm pretty sure we just invented a new word. Uh, spiritual leanership. That's what we need. That's what dads need today. Spiritual leadership. That's what moms need. That's what business owners need. In, in my life, the times where I have relied on my own certainty and my own intellect have turned out to be colossal disasters. The times when I leaned on God have worked in a way where only he can get the credit, right? Because everybody around knows, yeah, you didn't do this. God did this. You're not that smart. You're not that strong. God had to have done this. And only God can get the credit. And it's clear to everyone involved that he's the one leading and we're the ones leaning. And so dad, mom boss, you don't always have to know the answer. But you do have to know the one who does know the answer. And so Jehoshaphat said, God, we don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you. And to me, when I read that, it's so refreshing because it's so human. We don't know what to do. We're just trusting in you, God. And when you proclaim that faith toward God, he is ready to hear and answer prayer. And uh, look what happens next in verse number 14. Jehaziel shows up. And we won't read his pedigree again because he had like seven different names that he came from. Uh, but he came in the spirit of the Lord and uh, he said, listen, uh, I want you to hearken and I want you to know that you don't have to be afraid. Look at the end of verse 15. For the battle is not, yours, but God's. And that's the third part of a message. The battle is not yours. God answered the prayer of the king. He sent Jehaziel to deliver a message. They wouldn't need to fight this battle. They could sit this one out. God had their backs. They just needed to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Can you imagine if the coach showed up and said, hey, guys, You don't need to take the field for this one. There's nothing to fear. Just sit over in the bleachers and watch. But God, we we can't just stand here. We got to do something. If we aren't busy, we won't feel like we've done our job. If we don't carry the burden ourselves, we're shirking our duty. If we don't try to handle it on our own, we'll look weak. Stop just for a second. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that we insist on taking the field when God has already promised the victory? Fear, doubt, pride. There are unknown outcomes and we want control of them. Well, why do we take on cares? that God has already promised to carry? What stops us from kneeling in worship and watching God work? And I think sometimes it's because we have a misplaced sense of duty. We feel like that if we don't do it, it won't get done. But listen, friend, when we slip into if I don't do it, it won't get done mode, we often leave no room for the King of Glory To work. When we take charge of the battle, it becomes ours instead of God's. And it might show up in a lot of different ways. It might look like you becoming a workaholic. It might show up in you falling to temptation. It might show up in you struggling with addiction or dealing with depression or living in a life of miserable chaos, jumping from one emergency to the next. When you have a battle is mine, not God's attitude, you will feel the weight of the world on your shoulders. How do you know? I've been there. And here's the thing. If you feel the pressure to carry everything yourself, you'll also feel the pressure to personally take the blame when there's a defeat or failure. And could we just review if you carry everything yourself, you're headed toward disaster, right? If you carry everything yourself, you're headed toward complete failure. There's gonna be blame. And if you try to carry it all yourself and you're a parent, you'll blame yourself for your kids' bad choices. If you're a pastor, you'll blame yourself when people choose to leave the church. If you're a friend, You'll blame yourself when your friend chooses against God. And this is the negative side of, of the battle is mine, not God's type thinking. I want you to try something with me just for a second. <clears throat> you don't have to close your eyes. You can if you want, if it helps you focus. Sometimes it helps me focus. Right now, sitting there, I, I want you to think just for a second of the biggest struggle or pressure in your life. Now go ahead, it, it won't be tough because you think about it all the time, right? You know what it is. The moment I said the biggest struggle or pressure in your life, it jumped into your head. You know what it is. Now on purpose, would you do this? Take yourself off the battlefield. Take yourself off the battlefield and let God fight this one. Take the pressure off yourself and let it fall on God's. The battle is not yours, but God's. Stand still and see the salvation of God. This is a breakthrough type of faith. This is huge. Uh, I remember Amy and I, right after we got married, we got married on July 29th, 1994, in Nampa, in what is now the Taco Bell on 12th Avenue. And so on our anniversary, we went to the parking lot and took a selfie of the church where we got married, Taco Bell. And we drive by and Sophie says, Dad, did you really get married at Taco Bell? Well, there used to be a church there. It's a long story. But, but one whirlwind of a week later, uh, we showed up in Garland, Texas, to report to work as staff members at our first church down there. And uh, the pastor of the church was in his 50s at the time, which seemed really old back then, and now it just seems like, you know, looking in the mirror. (laughs) And one of of his famous sayings was, uh, he said it all the time, there are no emergencies. There There are no emergencies. No emergencies. And you could go rushing into his office, Pastor, such and such happened. It's a big deal. We need you now. And he'd say, come and sit down for a minute. There are no emergencies. And you'd be like, "Um, this this is an emergency. And he'd say, well, before we walk over there, let's pray. God, we know you're not surprised by this. You're in charge of it. Help us to see your glory in whatever takes place. Amen. And then he would walk very slowly, I might add, toward the non-emergency emergency. They just kind of, you know. And as a 22-year-old staff member, that was so frustrating to me. And I would think, somebody has to act, right? Somebody has to be in charge. Somebody has to do something right now. But through the years, I've grown to admire that kind of faith. See, there was somebody in charge, somebody bigger than you or I. Somebody who could fight the battle much better than any of us could. Somebody who had more wisdom to give than we could ever gain. Yeah, somebody who knew all the reasons and the motives for everything that was taking place. Could I ask you something? Would you be willing to quit fighting every battle on your own and let God fight for you? Or are you going to insist on making your life a battle of my battle, not God's battle struggle? I love Jehoshaphat's reaction to the prophet's words. The prophet came in and said, Hey, just so you guys all know, I know you guys are worshiping and there's a crisis and everything, but God heard uh, the battle is yours, not God. Stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. You don't need to fight this battle. But if you want to watch, here's where you go. And he told them exactly, go go down there and go by the cliff of Ziz tomorrow, and you're going to see what God does. And at verse 18, Jehoshaphat, uh, I love his reaction, he bowed his head with his face to the ground. By the way, that is the actual biblical meaning of worship. That's what worship is. It is to bow your head with your face to the ground toward God. All Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Now that leads us to this last part. Believe in the Lord, you're God. Believe in the Lord, you're God. So you follow this through verse 20. They got up early the next morning, and and, uh, Josphat stands up, and I love what he said. Hear me, O Judah, ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, look at this. They're going out to battle. He consulted with the people, and he appointed singers to lead the way. So Jehoshaphat led the way in this season of of worship and praise. In fact, he had the choir moved to the front of the army. Right, okay, choir out front, uh, swords in the back, shields in the back, choir out front, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to go into battle today singing about the beauty of God's holiness. And they went, Oh, hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. And they're going into battle singing hymns. Can you imagine this? Like... Do you not want to see the replay when you get to heaven? Here they walk into battle by the cliff of Ziz, and they're praising God for his mercy. And I'm sure the enemy across the way thought that they had lost their minds. Can you just imagine? You are in the greatest struggle of your life, and as you walk into the circumstance, you're singing to God and praising him for his eternal mercy. It's unheard of. Who does this? Only someone with eyes of faith that look toward the eternal, not the immediate. And so here's the choir singing God's majesty. And they got an incredible view. As God turned the armies of their enemies into a chaotic mess, the closer that they marched toward the watchtower in the wilderness, the more dead enemy soldiers they saw. And God took the entire enemy army out before they even arrived on the scene. Now, there was so much spoil of war that it took them three days to carry it all away. So let's refresh our memories. When they heard the enemy was coming, they humbled themselves in worship, fasting, and prayer. When they were assured the battle belonged to God, they bowed their faces to the ground and worshipped. And now, when the battle was over, it says that they worshipped again in the Valley of Baraka. Yeah, this is verse 26 and 27. They worshipped again in the Valley of Baraka. Now, you know, this is the only place in Scripture that this location is mentioned. The place is still there today. It's actually called Awadi Barakut now. It's, it's west of Tekoa, uh, on the road between Hebron and Jerusalem. And the valley of Baraka was the place where they worshipped God. After leaving the valley, they went back to Jerusalem and worshipped God again. Are you beginning to see a pattern here? Worship when you're afraid. Worship when you're facing a battle. Worship because the battle's not yours but God's. Worship after God fights for you. Worship when there's no more enemy in sight. And we finished this morning here in the valley of Baraka, which we find in verse 26 means the valley of blessings. The church where we hold our trainings in Brazzaville in the Congo is called L'Eglise Baraka. It means blessing church. You know, there's only one way to get to the valley of Baraka or blessing in your life, and it is through worship. Worship is the vehicle that moves the heart of God. Worship is the vehicle that directs your heart away from worry and toward reliance on God. Worship will protect you from leaning on your own understanding. Worship will guard your heart from idolatry. If you want to really freak out the enemies of God, just constantly worship Him. You see in verse number 29 that the enemies... uh, They were alarmed when they heard the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel. And then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet. I hope that you won't leave today under the pressure to fight your own battles this week. The battle's not yours. It's God's. If you insist on carrying your own burdens, you're missing out on God's marvelous works. And and Christian, sit this battle out. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Spend your time worshiping God, and it'll change your perspective on everything. The Valley of Baraka means worshiping God for everything. If you're happy, worship. If you're sad, worship. If you're healthy, worship. If you're sick, worship. If you live in Idaho, worship. If you live in Afghanistan, worship. If you have a vaccine, worship. If you don't have a vaccine, worship. If you have everything you want, worship. If you don't have anything you want, worship. If people like you, worship. If people don't like you, worship. If you watch the news, worship. If you never watch the news, worship. Paul said it this way. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. This is God's will for your life. God wants to fight the battle for you, and worship is the answer to crisis. It's also the only way to the Valley of Baraka. When you get get there to the Valley of Baraka, you will know for certain that it is only because of God. You can't get there on your own, You can only get there by worshiping God. And so as we close this service out today, let's take a moment to worship together. God, we bow our hearts before you today. And we proclaim that you are the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the beginning and the end, the Redeemer of our souls, and we worship you. And as we think of the everlasting glory that you bring, our problems, our circumstances, the situations of this life quickly fade away. Because when we worship you, it reminds us that the battle is not ours. It's yours. That the burdens that we insist on carrying can be cast on you. That the cares that weighed us down can be laid at your feet. And I pray this week that as we face difficulties, we would worship. As we go through times of joy that we'd worship, In whatever situation we're in, would you allow us to worship you and to bow our hearts before you? We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.